Welcome back to Dateline New Haven on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. William Tong's been making Connecticut tick, and he's looking for a chance to do it again for another four years. William Tong is the attorney general. And our state, unlike some other states, that doesn't mean he gets people who shoot people in prison. It doesn't mean he, he gets people who rob banks. They're the civil cases. Right. People who are poisoning your water or... Uh, it's another way of putting it. Cheating you out of stuff. Um, Consumer protection work. Yeah, yeah. Like addicting your kids to death and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's not a well understood um, part of our office, which is that we have very little criminal jurisdiction. I have a very small sliver. What is the sliver? Um, it, home improvement contractors, actually. <laughs> wow. um, if someone uh, breaks a law in, in doing work on your house, um, I have the ability to go into court and hold them accountable on a criminal basis. But otherwise, they'll still go first to consumer protection, correct? Um, I'm yes. asking if someone actually asked me the other day, who do they contact? They do. The they yeah. go to the Department of Consumer Protection first, but it can elevate to um, a, a criminal matter. And that's the that's the one area in which I exercise criminal jurisdiction. But otherwise, I'm the chief civil law enforcement officer in the state of Connecticut. All right. So you, so tell me about why you're running again. Four years, I've had the job. It's a busy job, high profile. What What's it been like that made you want to do another yeah. four years? I've I've learned and I've somewhat I've been amazed at, at how much the Office of the Attorney General can do to um, protect Connecticut families and, and residents. Um, it's been an extraordinary and uh, consequential four years, um, taking on everything from Eversource and United Illuminating, holding them accountable for their failures in storm response. Um, you know, I... I um, I'm leading the national generic drug price fixing case. We talk a lot about prescription drugs, but what's anybody doing about them? We are leading the states, almost all of them, in suing the generic drug cartel for rigging and fixing the market and charging us more for prescription drugs than we should possibly have to pay. Um, you know, Paul. You know what's interesting about that? Yeah. We don't pay a lot of attention to that because often what we're hearing about is wanting to have rules about what the – before it gets to generic – where the companies that develop the drugs, right? They charge you a lot, and you know you get those scare stories of the, you know if you, to stay alive, you need a medicine that costs you a hundred thousand a year. Well, tell me about the generic. What, that, what that, happened there? I never hear people talk about. So that. the branded drugs are important, but and 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 I don't want to say that's not where the action is, but ninety percent of the prescriptions that that are written in this country are generic, mm. and so that when they you, used to be right. Um, not until they created the generic drug market in 1984, and uh, Congress did that, and it was supposed to create competition so that you know you had a patent for say 20 years, and then would go off patent, and then the generic makers would compete with each other, and and while that sort of ostensibly happened, what we discovered, what George Jepson discovered, to be fair, former Attorney General, right, is that um, the major generic drug makers, not household names by the way, Teva. Taro, Sandoz, um, Mylan, these companies were 
colluding with each other, brazenly calling each other up on the phone. They, and they were going to industry conferences and saying, hey, what are you charging for azithromycin, for example, z right? Very familiar drug that all of us take, an antibiotic. Um, um, that, that they were openly, brazenly colluding with each other to fix prices, sometimes thousands of percent higher um, than they would otherwise be. And we discovered that the the market is rigged and fixed, and mm. that's why I'm suing all of them. It's and what, the, what is the basis of the suit? What, what, how many states are involved? Or? Almost 50. It depends. There are three different lawsuits, and there are different combinations of states. But basically all of us, um, they are state and federal antitrust claims. Um, it is on its face obviously illegal for competitors to – and you haven't had the rights with the phone call. You actually know about the phone calls. We have we have records of um, thousands of phone calls. What's interesting is what George did, Attorney General Jepson did, was he authorized the use of a of a software that the DEA uses. It's um, a drug enforcement agency, right? For illicit drug trade, um, and we use that to process phone records because oh, we didn't so right. we didn't have a software to process phone records. And boom, we saw that. Executives at Teva and Mylan and Heritage and Terra were talking to each other a lot. And then the communication spiked whenever they raised prices. Mm. And they would go like, they talk for 10 seconds. Oh, so that's how you kind of build your case. We build our case and then we got, we got people to testify. And then the mother load we hit on, apart from the phone records, was a couple volume diary. We called the Diary of Collusion. Where this senior executive—that could be—we call the book or the movie. Yeah, right? they, they wrote down and recorded all their illegal conduct. Yes, because they're arguing obviously that it's not illegal, right? Or else they wouldn't have that, uh, written it down. It's it's, and they haven't settled. It's been you know, Jepson's been out of office uh, four years. Why haven't they settled? Do you think? It, you know, it, it's still confounding to me when, honestly, I have them dead to rights. Mm. You know, the evidence is so strong, and the response has been, "Nah, not true. Didn't happen." And um, they have an organization. What's the national group called? They do have an organization. I don't know what it's called. They attack me frequently. Um, so if uh, my dad were alive, he'd still be attacking you. My dad died in 2000. Ah. And he was the original counsel for the generic drug manufacturers. So when I was growing up in the 1970s, I was led to believe generic drugs were a great thing. That these greedy pharmaceutical manufacturers. And the one time my dad got to argue before the Supreme Court was in 1982. Two. Two years before the generic drug market was created. Yeah. Yeah. And he argued, he won the case where pharmaceutical, well, there was still the generic drug industry before that. And they were, the generic, the, the pharmaceutical companies were arguing that if they changed the color of a pill, they should be able to extend the patent. Ah. And somehow that got to the Supreme Court. So I guess there was sympathy for the drug companies and he won that one. So your dad got a quill. You're supposed to get a quill, like a oh, yeah? feather, when you argue before the Supreme Court. And it was toward the end of his career, because uh, and he was he was very excited. But uh, I remember I went, I hitchhiked down to Washington and watched them at the Supreme Court. It must have been amazing. It was really fun to get yeah. nine to nothing. But but it did, nine to zip. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know how it got the Supreme Court. I guess I'm sure. But what did something change? Was I wrong as a kid to believe? And you don't have to stay on the father thing, you know. But he's a great guy. But like, uh, was he fighting for the little guy? Did the little guy become the big guy? Uh, probably both. There probably was a little guy and the original design of the market and enabling generic competition was designed to to take on the big guys. And, I mean, the concept's important, And drive right? the price down. Yeah. But the opposite happened. 
Now, are the prices as high as the original, or do they still go down, but just not much? Because it's supposed go, to go down a lot, right? I, I don't think anybody has seen prices really go down. They've, they've only gone up. So, so it's just so, a question of more people get to make money if their company can enter the market. But Because, you know, the manufacturers claim they have less incentive to innovate if they don't get to keep a longer patent, right? That's the argument, and maybe there's some currency to that argument. But it certainly doesn't excuse, A, exorbitant prices, and, and B, collusion and price fixing. Um, I'll give you an example. So I talked about azithromycin. Um, I take doxycycline for rosacea. So a lot of people, a lot of your listeners will have rosacea. It's just redness in your skin. And doxycycline is a common antibiotic that you take for a number of different ailments. If you get Lyme mm-hmm. disease, you should take doxycycline, right? Um, so doxycycline is a common antibiotic that's been around basically as long as I've been alive. And in in the 10-year period that, that we've been um, monitoring the price in our case, so, you know, let's call it the last 10 or 15 years, the price of doxycycline, the one I take, doxycycline Hicklet, has gone up 8,000% well, from what for a 40-year drug. <laughs> so what, what, what could what possibly the, what excuse what what? that? Uh, like how much do you pay? Well, I thankfully have good health insurance, so, so I, have, I have a modest copay, but, but the actual drug i think was twenty dollars or something a dose um and it and it spiked up into the hundreds and, th- and wow. of dollars so, so so when you do these lawsuits with other states they're powerful they have to they have to agree to give a lot of money then you can use to address the issue whether stop smoking originally and yeah. the other addiction and then you also look for changes in how they operate right and the question is is the law I guess it's not really an either or question whether the, the law and these kind of lawsuits, which are so important, why they exist, why we have these tort issues, or the, these kind of lawsuits, will that change the way it works, or does does the legislature need to pass laws to bring the generic industry out of the collusion shadows? Both, but the reason why attorneys general are so significant now um, is because of the failure of our federal legislature. Um, and the breakdown um, in Congress and their inability to get things done, right, and, and the gridlock. And, you know, our delegation is great. And and um, uh, obviously Congresswoman DeLauro, Senator Blumenthal, Senator Murphy, um, really important legislators on gun violence and appropriations. But, but I think they would tell you that Washington is broken and that Congress is unable to discharge some of its basic functions and duties. And and – when it's unable to do that, these fights devolve to the states. So how long did it take uh, until the Inflation Reduction Act to get um, Medicare the ability um, to, negotiate. to negotiate drug prices, right? It took forever. And, and we can't wait for Congress. And that's why George Jepson said we got to step in, and that's why we're leading this 50-state coalition. It's the same thing with the opioid and addiction crisis. Um, I think you know, Paul, if you watch – um, Connecticut public officials and what we do. I spend most of my personal lawyer time. So when I'm, you know, apart from being an administrator and leader of a um, state constitutional office, my personal lawyer time is spent by and large on the opioid and addiction crisis, working with my my colleagues, Democrats, Republicans, in recovering now what is the second largest multi-state cash recovery in history. It's $40 billion and counting, second only to the big tobacco settlement mm-hmm. brokered by Attorney General Blumenthal over 20 years ago. And then, you know, one question you talk about, we can't wait for Congress to be done in the states. 
there are two ways it gets done in the states, the same way two ways it gets done in D.C. There's legislation and there's the courts. And a lot of big decisions, I think everyone would agree with you, what you said. I don't think that's a controversial statement that we have gridlock. We're not able to tackle a lot of big issues. They become yeah. lawsuits because there's no other way to do them. Yeah. There is a criticism that that's not the best way to do no, them because whether the Supreme Court can change its mind about whether abortion should be legal based on who gets elected in the Senate and who can they make a judge. And again, it's not really an either or question because you don't have, but, but you know, in the 50 states, there's a group called ALEC on the right wing that writes the same law written by industry to get 50, you know, as many of the 50 states or the 37 they control solid, you know, to pass them. Do they have a better idea than the attorneys generals that we tackle these big issues or is it just not an either or? We would be the first to tell you, state attorneys general would be the first to tell you that um, litigation is not a good way to set policy. Mm -hmm. But it might be the only way. It might be the only way. So, Paul, I think you covered when I announced um, Connecticut's lawsuit against ExxonMobil Mm -hmm. to hold them accountable for their role in climate change. Um, That's an important and necessary case, but no doubt I had to act because of the slow pace of of response in Congress to the climate change. And tell us about that suit. So that's a straight-up consumer protection case. Um, it's it's very simple and very straightforward, and in that way, uh, a very powerful case against the fossil fuel industry. It, it simply says that uh, ExxonMobil knew about climate change and climate science since the 1950s. In fact, they developed the climate science. They educated children like me when I was in school about global warming and the hole in the ozone layer. And then sometime in the late 70s and early 80s, Big oil decided, you know what, this is harming the bottom line. We got to turn 180 degrees back the other direction. And they started denying their own science and casting doubt on um, the fact of climate change. And now they've gone a step further. You've heard this term greenwashing, where they profess to be adopting new technologies like algae, for example. When you watch a Super Bowl, there's this commercial by ExxonMobil about new algae-based energy production and fuel um, and, and that's greenwashing because they're trying to convince us that now that this green energy company, when they spend very little on, on so developing a really, really naive energy. question about this, sure, really naive, but I've always wondered it. So if I were those companies, I have short term profits, I have long term profits. What companies would be better positioned to profit off the transition to renewable energy? And the companies that are already in the industry and have done the research and can pivot to mass production, is it just that they think of short-term profits to, for shareholders with quarterly reports when you're a public company, or is there something I'm missing? No, I, I think that's right. I think it's the, not just the short-term view, but how executive compensation is tied to the short-term mm-hmm. view, right? If you, if you don't make money now in terms of your stock price, you're not going to make tens of millions of dollars in – uh, executive compensation. So, for example, uh, I took on the major health insurers a couple months ago when they were seeking exorbitant um, uh, rate increases uh, as high as 25, 35%. And I had to note that Cigna, which is a Connecticut based company, um, was asking for an exorbitant increase because they said, we can't do business if we don't get these increases. And yet the CEO made $80 million last year. $80 million. Uh, and, um, that's an exorbitant sum by any measure. Um, and I think what you have are executives and management that are focused on here and now, um, instead of their long-term future and, and, and 
they're going to cut off their nose to spite their face because the liability that they are facing long term is profound. It's profound, and it could, um, and it could be an existential dilemma for these companies um, because we feel very good about our case that they lied to us um, about about climate change. They caused us damage, and they're responsible. We're talking to William Tong. He's the Attorney General of State of Connecticut. He's seeking a second four-year term. He's the Democrat, also endorsed by the Working Families Party. So what a cash cow your office is. Is there another office in Connecticut that brings in so much more money than it spends? Yes, there's only one more, the Department of Revenue Services. <laughs> I have to be honest. So, uh, other how than, much do you bring in and how much Other than DRS, um, I think in this past year it's approaching a billion dollars for the first time. Not quite over a billion. But um, when, you, when you add in all in not just cash um, to the state, uh, to you know, fund, for example, in the in the opioid crisis treatment and prevention programs and addiction science, and most of that money, by the way, is not going to the general fund. It's going to treatment, prevention, and addiction science. Um, but also money that we recover for constituents. So, um, for example, during the pandemic, you had um, flights canceled, or you had a wedding re- a reservation at a wedding venue, and you put ten thousand dollars down and you couldn't get it back. You know. When you add that up, and then you and you add up the uh, savings um, for consumers, for example, when we take on EverSource and United Illuminating, when you add all of that up, it's close to a billion dollars. Oh, that includes savings for consumers. Mm-hmm. How much does it bring to the to the state uh, in terms of actual cash? Yeah, um, it depends on the year and depends on how much we recover. And so, um, usually, it's in the low hundreds of millions, so somewhere between a hundred million and three hundred million depending on the year. And what's your budget, including contracts with outside attorneys? Uh, we don't do much with outside attorneys, which is very different from other states. Um, other states that are our size will often say they're too small to handle these big cases on their own, so they have to contract with lawyers outside lawyers. Have? I have more than 200 lawyers wow. uh, in total, 300 staff, 20 Is it? – I think it's close to $30 million a year in budget. Um, and we recover, we recovered in the last year 27 times my budget. So um, it's usually between 20 and 30 times the budget. So what, what two of those big issues are, you know, involve addiction, which is, you know, such a big issue that cuts across ideological lines, even though it's hard to talk about sometimes on a national stage. You know, the, the terrible addiction stories. Like Wall Street Journal had an amazing story yesterday about fentanyl-laced cocaine and three of the cases yeah. they took the home delivery service. Yeah. That was just quite a story. But it's also, you know, in the heartland. people. And so you have two key cases, right? You have Purdue Pharmaceutical and Juul, correct, on so, addiction? So there's, there's actually a lot of action in this area. And so the big recovery in, in my tenure was against the three major drug distributors, Amerisource, Bergen, Cardinal, and McKesson, Johnson & Johnson, which is not a distributor, it's a manufacturer, was part of that settlement. Mm-hmm. And that's the $26 billion settlement. Mm-hmm. Um, for all 50 states. For all 50 states. Yeah. And um, that will that will bring in more than $300 million to Connecticut. And there'll be a process, right, for how that – you said a lot of it's going to go through addiction treatment. So that money is already starting to flow to Connecticut. There, Some of that money, 15% of that money, goes straight to cities and towns, mm-hmm. okay, um, it's a modest amount compared to the total recovery, but the automatic amount of 15% goes to cities and towns. And then there will be a – there's a council that's being impaneled now consisting of half 
uh, of the representatives on the council are cities and towns. Uh, and so um, they'll be leading the way. Why? Because at the end of the day, this money will go to treatment and prevention programs in cities and towns mm-hmm. that are largely often run by cities and towns. We'll be visiting New London tomorrow, I think. And New London has a has a world-class, um, you know, leading program on substance abuse and addiction. And uh, we want to highlight highlight New London's Will program. They still, Will and Elmetic was often an epicenter of the opioids. Actually, Connecticut, in, in the parlance of the opioid and addiction crisis, Connecticut is a small, hard-hit state. Mm-hmm. We, we've been punished by this crisis almost almost 1,400 people a year, and that number keeps going up Dying. Um, that we lose to this crisis. So what are you learning about? We talked about this before we went on the air. A lot of these lawsuits, like on pharma companies, when you go up to big tech, you get Democrats are working, that Republicans working together in this incredibly polarized time, yeah. especially at the state level. I mean, people run for attorney general on very partisan issues. You yeah. know, tell me about why you've been able to work together on these cases and what you've learned from that about the potential for America to work together. So, two things that I have to chuckle at. I think when I was here four years ago, I told you that um, I should be attorney general because of my experience as a legislator chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and because of my private practice experience working in a big law firm. Now, I told you that because, to be fair, that's what I had, right? Mm-hmm. Those were my, my two leading arguments. I really didn't know how true it would be until I became attorney general. Mm-hmm. And um, when I became attorney general, I realized that the people who were prosecutors um, had had sort of been one woman, one man operations. Mm. They were not as good at building coalitions as the legislators. And so I, as a former legislator, what do I know how to do? I know how to count, right? Mm. I know how to build the coalition. And so um, you, you may know that in the distributor settlement, some of my colleagues, half of them announced a settlement at $18 billion without checking with the rest of us. Yeah, you said you held out for more. And I held out for more because I knew how to count. And I knew who to include in my coalition, like I knew back when I was in the state legislature. If I had New Haven, right, on my side, and I had Stanford, and I had Bridgeport, I was in good shape. Um, and if I had, you know, not as strong municipalities uh, or, or legislators, I, you know, I might struggle. Same is true in the AG space. There's 56 of us, states, territories, and the District of Columbia. Okay. And I built a coalition with Republicans and Democrats. But I, in my coalition on distributors, I had Florida, I had Georgia, I had Ohio, I had Massachusetts, Democrats, Republicans, big and small. And that legislative experience, knowing how to build a vote count, knowing how to whip votes. Can that be transferred to how we deal with other issues in other arenas? Yeah. I mean, look, there, there, there couldn't be two more diametrically opposed attorneys general right now than me and Ken back Ken Paxton right, the attorney general yeah. of Texas but I, I have to tell you that Ken Paxton was our partner on jewel mm-hmm. uh, Ken Paxton is our partner on Google uh, and so that we need each other the states need each other I, I will be honest that um, the politics uh, have strained some of these relationships it's getting worse it's not getting better and there's been a lot of pressure on our national association, the National Association of Attorneys General, which uh, unfortunately is being attacked from the right. Um, but but 
still to this day, we're getting a lot of important business done on a, on a bipartisan, nonpartisan basis as a coalition of states. Uh, Ken Kraski is your Green Party opponent. He has represented people who came up against the state who sued him for mistreatment by cops or prison guards. And he was very critical about your role in a yeah. case, Kara Tangretti, who was repeatedly raped by prison guards. Yeah. The prison guards were held responsible. There was a suit to hold the supervisors responsible. And um, you got a, a federal ruling saying that the suit limiting the liability to just the people who actually committed the harm. And he felt that was a bad new precedent. What, what do you, what's your response? To so that? I, I can't comment on actual cases, you know, pending or recent cases. But let me say this. Um, when when people are hurt or harmed and people allege that they're harmed by the state, we have to take that very seriously. And when when the facts support um, that somebody has been harmed, there is a process um, for us to make that right. And and that's why we have cases. That's why we have courts. That's why we have judges. But in that process, it's really important to acknowledge what my role is. I'm not the judge, jury, and executioner. Mm -hmm. I am the state's lawyer. I have a constitutional, statutory, which means state law, and ethical obligation to represent my client zealously. Paul, you mentioned your your dad was a lawyer. Um, I assume you've hired lawyers in the past. Um, Tiny bit, yeah. Tiny bit, right? What, house closing, something like that, right? I got sued once for live, but we won. Okay, (laughs) there you go. But you expected your lawyer to to be aggressive and faithful to you and and – um, and to do everything that that lawyer could do to represent your interest as strongly and aggressively as as he or she could, I have the same obligation to so my clients. So I guess clients. the question is, who is you? Who is the client? Like, is the people who in the state who come from the families of someone who might have been killed in custody are they the client too, or is it more narrowly the state official who's being sued? And we have a you're saying we have a process in court where we get it as a truth. as a legal and ethical matter. Um, the client is the state of Connecticut, its officials acting in their official capacity, right, and state agencies and departments. Now, when somebody doesn't act in their official capacity, and let's say they're a state official, they do something wrong, I don't think that they did it in the discharge of their duties. I can decline to represent them, and I do do that, but I have to be really careful about when I do that, and and those are in extraordinary cases because it is my obligation to represent my clients no matter what their political affiliation is, right, and what their position is so that somebody at DOT should feel like they're going to get the same representation as somebody at DCF, Department of Children and Families, or somebody in the Department of Corrections. And the governor, Democrat or Republican, should feel like the attorney general is going to be strong and faithful and an aggressive advocate for them, no matter their party affiliation. Remember, Dick Blumenthal never had a Democratic governor, Mm -hmm. not for a single day. He always had either Lowell Weicker or Republican governors, and he had to do his job the best that he could for his clients. And William Tong's looking to do that for another four years. You had one case that I was very sympathetic to, and so was your critic, Kreisky. We're talking about how do you deal with this crazy case with Project Veritas? That was a... As a reporter, I have a very strong opinion that doesn't have much to do with the law. I think they go in and it's fake. They pretend to be a reporter, and they get somebody to say something they can then chop up and yeah. edit to make it look yeah. like it's terrible to advance the right-wing agenda and then hide under um, legal protection. So they went to Greenwich. They got some guy. They got some woman that looked like went to a bar, if I'm not mistaken, trying to get this guy to act like he was part of a Democratic conspiracy to keep Catholics and conservatives off of 
office school um, office school faculty. So he gets her to brag while they're having drinks that he kindly allegedly does this stuff. They release a very partially edited video that makes it sound like some nightmare that has no relation to reality in most places in the world. And then there's a political storm. Yeah, you waited only six hours to open a civil rights investigation. Uh, twenty-four hours, and you like are already hours. you are. But but you sleep a part of that time, and it has to like find out it happened. Yeah, like you immediately did it, and you were already attacked in a political environment for not going fast enough. And then there were other results. Like Ken Kresge was trying to criticize you. He said he actually didn't disagree with you that you had investigated. I wondered as a journalist, were their methods the problem, or what the guy said on air the problem? And did he really say it? Like, what are you investigating in that case? So uh, let me just say that I can't comment extensively on on this investigation. Cuns is pending and it's active, very active, actually. Um, But let me say this. Uh, uh, I said some things um, while acknowledging, first of all, that hate and discrimination is wrong in any context. And it doesn't matter who it who it happens to um, that. Um, in the Office of the Attorney General, we exercise our authority, our law enforcement authority, our civil rights authority to protect all people. Um, but I said some things about um, the way we treat each other and what this says about the way we treat each other, and I stand by what I said. And and I think the larger question is um, the quality of our of our discourse about public policy issues, and um, uh, whether it's whether it's elected officials or, or teachers or journalists, right? We all play a part in, in this conversation and public debate, and we should treat each other better. Food Lion, that was in New York, back in last century when New York, the TV station went undercover to show, I think it was a supermarket, had some pretty bad uh, handling of food that endangered the public, but they pretended to be employee to go there. They got under false circumstances. They lost the lawsuit. Is that still the standard? Could Project Veritas be held to account for those methods? Of deception. Well, I, I think we're going to find out. And, and again, I don't want to comment on a pending investigation and compare one situation to another, except suffice it to say, I'm going to be very thorough and comprehensive. And I'm going to look at all sides of this. All right. What a pleasure to have you back, William Tong. It's really nice to see you. Um, Thank you, Paul. You're running for re-election as a Democrat and working families candidate for attorney general, a steady candidate. The elevator button's been pushed. You have your 30 seconds for elevator speech. Why should you be reelected? Well, uh, I hope that people give me the opportunity again to work hard to protect and defend Connecticut families. We face extraordinarily powerful forces that squeeze us every single day. Uh, I think we have produced some important results for people in this state and hope to continue to do so for another four years. All right. Thank you, William Tong. Thank you, Harry Droz, the bed, best uh, um uh, uh, station manager in the business and we were just on Twitter where it got sent around about uh, about this issue we're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the group CD A Plea for Peace this is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night at WNHH New Haven's home for community radio